Howdy. Welcome to Healthcare Ain't Easy, presented by Chris Matthew. I'm Chris Matthew. Today, healthcare can be exciting one day and confusing the next. It can be awe-inspiring. It can also be terrifying. And now with AI part of the equation, this often leads to more questions than answers. I've spent the last two decades navigating healthcare in various ways, and I'll be your guide as we explore how AI and technology in general will impact healthcare for all of us. Through conversations with respected thought leaders like we have today, we'll explore where we've been, where we're going, and how it affects how we're gonna live every day. Ultimately, healthcare certainly ain't easy. We hope that listening to the ideas we share here can revitalize your optimism in the future of our industry and ultimately its ability to care for humanity. As we continue to explore the challenges the healthcare industry is facing, we know that there are a lot of challenges out there for us. But we also know that if we can communicate and collaborate and come together, those are the first steps for a successful outcome for all of us. My why is to connect with people so that we can boldly contribute to an improved world. Now, some may say that seems too generic, but I challenge myself and ask myself daily, how do I go out of my way to genuinely connect with people and want to take those connections to work towards doing big things? That process fills my cup and it's a primary energy source for me. So I do see it as my why. If you happen to be generously sharing your time with me and us today, we want to know what's your why. Drop us a note on our social channels on Instagram at sniffle.ai, on Facebook it's the Sniffle app, on LinkedIn it's Sniffle Health. You can also find us on YouTube, sniffle-ai. We are always interested where, find a, where people find their purpose and their drive. What I'm excited about right now is, and it might just be because of this is where I'm spending so much of my time, but the medical community seems to be really activated right now. I am seeing and hearing from physicians and physician leaders all across the country. And it could be, again, that I'm just really close to it, so I'm really hearing more of it, I'm seeing more of it, but there seems to be a growing and gaining voice of physicians and clinicians that are rallying together and speaking out that today's current healthcare environment is outdated and it's ready for change. The system needs correcting and physicians and clinicians and physician leaders need to be a part of that correction. Sniffle Health is coming alongside those parties, supporting them in that course correction by applying AI and advanced tech to clear the field of obstacles and help providers return joy back to their practice. We all have a long road ahead of us, but we're fired up and energized for it. Today, we have with us Dr. David Ballard. I know that Dr. Ballard is fired up for this and here for this too. Dr. Ballard is a dual citizen of Ireland and the United States and a global healthcare leader and a board certified internist. David trained at the Mayo Clinic and completed five academic degrees with honors in economics, public health, epidemi epidemiology, medicine, and business at UNC, where he was also a Moorhead Scholar. David was an associate professor at the Mayo Clinic, uh, associate professor at the Mayo Clinic, associate professor with tenure at UVA, 
a professor of epidemiology and medicine with tenure at Emory University. And then he came and made his way here to Texas. He joined Baylor's Baylor Healthcare System in 1999 as its first chief quality officer, and then became in 2013, the chief quality officer of the Baylor Scott and White Health System, Texas's largest healthcare system in the state. A former president of the International Society for Quality and Healthcare, he served on the board of managers of the Heart Hospital of Baylor Plano, and on the BSWH Kessler Select Rehab Rehabilitation and Long-Term Care Board. He is currently a board of several other companies, including Mentis AB, the world's leading endovascular simulation company, which is a public company headquartered in Gothenburg, Sweden, and Pascal Metrics, the leading economic electronic, rather, the leading electronic health, health record data mining and healthcare harm reduction company. David's book on Steep, which we're going to get into a lot today, Steep Healthcare received the Shingo Award for its contributions to operational excellence in healthcare. That is quite an introduction for absolutely a tremendous man. Dr. Ballard, thanks so much for joining us. Chris, it's a pleasure to be with you today. We're happy to have you. Um, quite a quite a lead in there, huh? Yes, that's way too many words. It was a lot of words. Uh, I tried to memorize it, but uh, I don't know if I got all of it together. But I appreciate you being here. Let's start with just how are you? What's what's good for for you? I'm doing well. You know, today was a good day. I uh, I had a uh, a great training session this morning uh, with with my uh, personal trainer here in Dallas, a guy named Joseph Lane, who's a very important part of my health-related quality of life. Uh, and uh, I had lunch with a dear friend of mine, former Baylor Scott and Wright Health colleague, Gary Brock. It's great to finally be here and to have a chance to you know talk to others who uh, care about the same kinds of things that you and I care about. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm glad you're here. Um, Dr. Ballard, let's start with if you can give us a highlight reel of highlight reel of where you're from, and uh, who what helped shape you to become who you are today. Sure, and you know you, Simon Sinek more recently has talked about why, but you know, Chris, I probably had a why a long time before Simon Sinek said that was something important to have. Okay, so I, I'm really privileged, Chris. I was uh, born the sixth child. Uh, in a family of uh, greatest generation parents, the sixth of eight children. I was born in the old St. Joseph's Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, where my father was an ear, nose, and throat surgeon and chief of staff. Uh, my parents were, you know, greatest generation Americans. My mother was a flight nurse stationed in England in World War II. She saw everything. She was behind enemy lines for two weeks in the Battle of the Bulge. She was a in Paris the day after it was liberated. She took care of some of the first injured soldiers, uh, D-Day, and uh, she had many stories about her efforts to uh, care for, for wounded soldiers, uh, including one where she, she brought a uh, a patient with an abdominal wound uh, flew them from from uh, Europe over to uh, uh, Newfoundland, and as they were they were getting off the plane, and she went up to the surgeon and said, "You know, I think you ought to look at this guy. He needed a lot of IV fluids to maintain his blood pressure on the flight." And this guy said, "Well, I'm the doctor, and you're the nurse." She said, "Well." Uh, 
I believe I've probably seen a lot more trauma in my life than you have because you've been in Newfoundland and I've been in the middle of the war for the past two years. And I think you really need to look after this guy. So my parents met uh, at the end of the war. My father was a surgeon uh, stateside uh, at Chinook Airfield in Chicago, near, near, near Chicago. And they met, my mother was a charge nurse on call. My father was, was on call, gave him a call about a patient who needed to be seen. And she was impressed because he decided to uh, come over to the hospital and check out the patient. Uh, but uh, long story short, I had these great parents. Turns out my, my mother outranked my father uh, in, in, the, in the military, uh, and she was in the middle of the war, and my father uh, was, was stateside as a surgeon. So. Uh, my mother talked a lot about the war. My father didn't want to talk a lot about yeah. the war. But uh, yeah, so so my wives, the, the kind of commitment that my parents had to providing great care for, for patients. Uh, I'm the sixth of eight children, three, four, five, and six were all uh, all physicians. Uh, and, and, you know, not to get into too much detail about this, but I was sort of prototypic post-World War II Catholic family. We went to this uh, grade school in Lexington, Kentucky, Christ the King School, used to well, walk to school and, and back every day. Uh, and after my father died, my mother was, uh, I was moving out of, out of our, our home. Uh, I going, you know, helping her with with moving her things. She had every report card for for every child for for all of our academic years, and I sat down and I lined up all of our report cards from this grade school. Long story short, Chris, this was a grade school with tough nuns. For the average grade, was maybe a C or worse. So I was looking and. When I was in the third grade, a sister in the first grade, a sister in the fifth grade, a sister in the sixth grade, a brother in the eighth grade, I lined up those report cards in that particular year. Every grade, every quarter, and for the year was an A for all five of those students. I did get a U in penmanship, kind of a harbinger that maybe I, I would have a productive career in medicine, but uh, I think that was the only blemish on our five report cards. That is tremendous. Thanks for sharing that. Um, wow. Well, that that would definitely give you more than enough fuel and passion and drive uh, to pursue this path that you have achieved. But five academic degrees with honors, again, in economics, public health, epidemiology, medicine, and business. That's a lot to take on. What, um, how did you pursue that? And then you're a Moorhead scholar, then you go and pursue clinical training at the Mayo Clinic, then you stay on staff at the Mayo Clinic, like, wow, that is an incredible personal drive, David. Um, where did that drive academically stem from? Well, Chris, I don't want to confuse, you know, academic degrees and clinical credentials with competence, okay? I've just personally found that, you know, to have broad and deep training myself has been helpful. I draw upon that every day uh, in, in the work I, I do in healthcare. So uh, just briefly, I mean, so part of this, you know, the three sisters around me were all high school valedictorians. So, you know, I, I didn't want to disappoint my parents, Chris, right? Uh, so I was fortunate. I went to a, a, a phenomenal secondary school in New Jersey, the Lawrenceville School. Uh, did well there. I uh, was one of 17 people in my class admitted to Harvard. 
Uh, but by the time I was a senior, my father had developed Parkinson's disease. Uh, he'd been a surgeon, so his historic income was such, it's gonna take me a couple of years to qualify for a, a, a need-based financial aid to go to college. And so Lawrenceville School said, you know, we nominate for this scholarship at the University of North Carolina called the Moorhead Scholarship. It's unusual, David, in that it's the first merit-based scholarship in the United States. Your financial circumstances are not at all important here. It's entirely based on merit, uh, uh, based on, on sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, academic ability and accomplishments, leadership, uh, 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 sort of, sort of personal values, and, uh, 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 and there's sort of an element of physical vigor in that. And, and so long story short, Chris, my life really changed. I, I, I uh, you know, was admitted to Harvard, was admitted to Amherst, but I went and interviewed at the University of North Carolina for the Moorhead Scholarship on my 18th birthday. And so, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a Tar Heel true and true right now. I mean, I have five degrees from UNC. That day was the was if you're a Carolina basketball fan, Duke was up by eight points with 17 seconds left against the men's basketball team. Carolina scored eight points. Walter Sweet D. Davis, who sadly died about a month ago, the uncle of Hubert, uh, UNC's uh, current basketball coach. Walter Bank went in from half court in a three-shot error. Carolina would have won the game. That tied the game as a two-pointer. Carolina won in overtime. Uh, you know. I'm not going to see basketball like this in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So my other 16 Lawrenceville classmates went to Harvard, and I said, I'm going to be a Tar Heel. So you've got uh, you've got conflict in your life because you're you're a Tar Heel and a Wildcat. Yeah, I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, Adolph Rupp's backyard, my backyard, abutted one another, you know, perhaps HIPAA violation, but my father took out the late uh, Herky Rupp's tonsils, Adolph's uh, son, and my, 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 my father took out uh, Mrs. Rupp's adenoids and cared for them in other ways. So, you know, we knew the Rupp family. Uh, and yeah, Chris, uh, December 16th in Atlanta, Kentucky is going to play UNC in basketball. And despite my five degrees from UNC, I do support the Wildcats when, when they play the Tar Heels in basketball. <laughs> you are complex, David. That is many layers. And so on top of that, your wife is a physician. She's a radiation oncologist. You all met uh, at, during her training at the Mayo Clinic? Yeah, we met at the Mayo Clinic. She, uh, she's a partner here in Dallas with Texas Oncology, the largest independent cancer group in the world, about 700 oncologists, part of U.S. Oncology uh, McKesson. Yeah. And, you know, today's my wife's part of my, my why in healthcare. She, she gets up every day and takes care of patients with, with cancer. Her mother died of breast cancer. She sees a bit of her her mother in the eyes of her patients. And yeah, that's really powerful. Well, I've had the chance to speak with Michaela and she is a very generous person. But but maybe Chris to just sort of touch base about so so why did I pursue this broad training that I pursued yeah. to, you know, be positioned to try to uh, uh, help companies that have an interest globally in making healthcare safer and, and, and more affordable and more equitable. So as an undergraduate, I, I, under, I had a sense that's what I wanted to do with my life. So I was an economics major. I also, you know, was a chemistry major, but, but my undergraduate honors thesis was in economics on economics of primary care in the British National Health Service. One day I'm, uh, 
back in Lexington doing rounds with my father at St. Joseph's Hospital. And he kind of looks at me, he says, you know, son, I noticed in your report card, you're doing really well in, in school. So I think you're probably going to get into medical school. And he says, I'm very concerned you're studying economics. Are you going to support the doctors? Or are you going to support the administrators? And he says, you know, where I come from in the country, in Holy Cross, Kentucky, we used to say if a bull didn't know which side of the barbed wire fence it wanted to be on, that was kind of bad for the testicles of the bull. And so uh, I said, Dad, um, isn't it really about the patients? Don't you think everyone in healthcare, healthcare actually wants to help patients? You know, And so that's really why, why I kind of trained as broadly as I did. You know, uh, undergraduate degree in economics, went to medical school. Uh, uh, I did three years of medical school. And then over the next two years, I did a master's and PhD in the School of Public Health, a broad-based master's of science in public health and a PhD in epidemiology. At that time, Chris, so fellow Tar Heels know the School of Public Health is right across the street from the medical school. I was the only one of 160 people in my class who took a walk across the street. My classmates would shake their head and say, David, like, what does that have to do with being a doctor? Today, out of maybe 180 medical students at UNC, about 60 do degrees in the School of Public Health. My wife and I, um, endowed a scholarship so that at least one medical student every year can do a degree in, in the Department of Health Policy and Management because we want these medical students to think about, you know, how can they help address these challenges of making healthcare safer, more affordable, more equitable. So, so I, I, did, I did that training. Uh, and amongst the things I did, Chris, I, for two years, was the director of the oldest indigent care safety net uh, student-run health care organization in the country called the uh, Student Health Action Coalition Clinic, or SHAC Clinic. Wow. So it's a collaboration from the schools of medicine, public health, nursing, dentistry, and pharmacy. So I led that clinic for two years, learned about how do you work in teams, uh, understood about scarcity in the uh, in in the spring of uh, I think it was uh, 1980 I made the case to the United Way that we deserved a hundred uh, eleven hundred dollars in cash to help run the clinic we saw 50 patients a night Monday evening we were open for 50 weeks a year so we saw about had about two uh, thousand five hundred patient visits. Uh, a, a year, and we ran that clinic on $1,100 cash. We obviously had a lot of donated labor, including my own and the labor of a lot of my other UNC colleagues, and we had a lot of supplies and medications provided. It's interesting as we think about Sniffle Health and the, the, the potential for telehealth to improve healthcare, that today, uh, that clinic does a lot of non-visit-based non care, does provide services through telehealth, in addition to having a physical location for care. But in, uh, in 1980, all we had was a physical location. We, uh, the, the health department let us use their offices on Monday evening to take care of patients. So, so I, I, I was fortunate to have this great training at the University of North Carolina. And then as I was finishing up, so it took five years to do the MD, the master's and the PhD, thought, okay, so where do I go for my clinical training? And, and that was probably one of the most uncertain times of my life. I mean, 
when I, I applied to like three colleges and ultimately you know, took the Moorhead to go to UNC, I applied early decision of medical school at UNC. But I looked at probably 50 different medicine programs all across the, all across the United States. And Chris, I was just blown away when I traveled to Rochester, Minnesota, and walked around the hospital and looked at the commitment of people at the Mayo Clinic to, to uh, you know, back in the 20s, uh, Charlie Mayo said, uh, uh, the, the only interest to be considered is the interest of the patient. Now today, as we recognize also the importance of joy and caregiving for nurses and physicians, I think Mayo now says uh, patients come first, but uh, uh, for those of us who trained a long time ago at Mayo, our mantra is, is the only interest to be considered is the interest of patients. So. I was really impressed with the couple of days I spent, and, and I was fortunate. I had many, many places uh, where, where, you know, if I'd ranked them first in the match, I would have ended up there. But I thought, you know, probably the best place in the world to train clinically with the best clinicians in the world uh, is the Mayo Clinic. And so that's why I decided in 19... 1983 to leave Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and, and ultimately <laughs> endure eight winters in Rochester, Minnesota. Where, Big change. Where, where the night my daughter, who's 35, the night she was born, it was minus 35, minus 80 wind chill. So there, there's some cold winter days in Rochester. So, uh, so, so Chris, uh, my time at Mayo was was great. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of uh, uh, high points there, a lot of great experiences. But maybe for the purposes of our discussion today, as I was finishing up my training, there was a new CEO at the Joint Commission, and that person had the temerity to give Mayo like six Category One dings. And the uh, CEO at the Mayo Clinic at that time, Bob Waller, ophthalmologist, was Barbara Bush's ophthalmologist, amongst others. Uh, uh, Bob says to me, you know, David, we actually would like to continue to get paid by Medicare here at the Mayo Clinic. And, you know, we have this uh, relationship with the Joint Commission where they're responsible for our deeming status with, with at that time, with Medicare. Uh, and so, David, you know, as you think about joining the staff here, I'd really like you to, to focus on, on addressing these six issues. But more broadly, David, I'd like you to work uh, with then the chair of the Clinical Practice Committee, Dennis Cortez, to kind of think through how should we systematically approach improving healthcare across Mayo Clinic. Uh, uh, and so at a pretty young age, age 30, I had this responsibility uh, th that I never expected that I would have had at that age, but my academic background, you know, uh, couldn't have been better for, for sort of that assignment. If yeah, you will. that's, uh, <clears throat> wow. That's a lot. You just shared a lot with us, and I'm grateful for it. Let me ask, okay, you've had this incredible opportunity to learn from really bright people from early on in your life, from your parents to these incredible institutions uh, leading to the Mayo Clinic. Constantly surrounded by top-level thinkers, you yourself uh, willing to put in the effort and wanting to do this, having the drive to do this. Help us understand what... Uh, First of all, what is steep healthcare? Sure. And then second, wh who helped collaborate on this concept of steep, and why do you, why did you, why did you all create this and say this is uh, a framework? Sure. That we need to put into place to help healthcare. Sure. And you know, Chris, w we all contribute to improving healthcare. Uh, so 
you know, my, my role is just, just you know, uh, one contribution amongst many. But so I was recruited to Dallas in 1999. I was the first full-time physician executive with Baylor Healthcare System and became its uh, first chief quality officer in 1999. So around the time that I was recruited, the Institute of Medicine of the United States, now known as the National Academy of Medicine, they, they had a, um, uh, a, a, an, an overall initiative around improving the quality of care in America. Their, their first book that came out, uh, this book, To Err is Human, in uh, uh, First Do No Harm, or uh, Primum non nocere uh, would be the Latin, uh, uh, very close, the Italian's very close. Uh, my wife's an Italian, so uh, I've, I've learned Italian, but I speak it like a hick from Kentucky. Uh, so this book, many of you will, will remember, 1999 from the Institute of Medicine, this book, uh, amongst other things, uh, uh, reviewed the evidence uh, at that time, a best estimate around 100,000 people dying in U.S. hospitals related to, uh, to errors. And, and so, so this was the first book. The second book uh, in, uh, from the Institute of Medicine came out a couple of years later, 2001, uh, 2000, 2001, uh, Crossing the Quality Chasm. So Crossing the Quality Chasm identified uh, six six aims for healthcare in in America, and uh, at that time, so I came the summer of '99. Uh, we deliberated for six months about a potential merger with Texas Health Resources and Baylor Scott My Health didn't do that, and then quite appropriately, we focused on Baylor Healthcare System strategies going forward. So I was asked by then the chair of the board of Baylor Healthcare System, Dale Jones to basically develop a strategic approach for improving healthcare quality. You know, so it sort of gave me a charter to do that, if you will, working with other board member uh, or other board members and executives. So I was, I, I was one of the readers for the um, Crossing the Quality of Chasm from the National Academy of Medicine. So I was aware of what was gonna be released. And I knew that that, um, uh, that publication was uh, taking a position that healthcare uh, had uh, needed to have six dimensions, that it needed to be. Uh, so, so, so that that version was step T, something like S T E P E E. It needed to be safe, timely, effective, patient-centered, efficient, and equitable. Now. You know, not many people could remember an acronym step step T, step E S T E P E E. So um, I uh, sat down and thought, okay, how do I communicate with twenty five thousand employees across Baylor Healthcare System about what we're trying to do? How, how can uh, I come up with with an acronym that they might remember? That, that, that could help them think about these things every day as they're waking up and thinking about going to work. And so we took those six aims and we said, okay, let's, let's actually say it's steep care, uh, S-T-E-E-E-P, care. So the idea was we're, we're, we, we, have a, we have a current state and we're trying to get to an ideal state, so it's a steep climb. Mm -hmm. And then the six dimensions 
are safety, timeliness, effectiveness, efficiency, equity, and patient-centeredness. So, so uh, we actually uh, uh, we actually trademarked Steep, and and for many years I uh, uh, I lectured around the United States and globally, and people came to Dallas to see what we were doing. Uh, in our in our journey to try to um, move closer and closer to care that was safe, timely, effective, efficient, equitable, and patient-centered. That's amazing. Um, creating that concept and, and reframing step E to steep, I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, when communicating that across the 25,000 employees of Baylor Scott & White Health, did, were they able to grab onto that? Were they able to say, eventually, you know, we, we connect with Steve. And is that a practice and a framework that is now still practiced within BSWH and also has it spread to other systems? Sure. So, uh, you know, I would say that uh, while different countries have different elements of care, I think that uh, uh, most people who, who think about healthcare, these six dimensions resonate with them. The other day, just out of the blue as an example, I got a LinkedIn message from someone saying, you know, you don't know me. I'm about to become the chief quality officer of some healthcare system in New York. And, uh, you know, I, I reread your, your Steep Care book to, uh, to, to prepare for this new leadership role. And thank you very much for writing this book. So, so the what a reward. so the point about writing the book was, uh, candidly, one of the reasons I wrote the book in 2013, we were doing this merger between Baylor Healthcare System and Scott and White, and and I was becoming the chief quality officer of the merged entity. This book was very intentionally a communication device to my uh, Scott and White colleagues about what our journey had been and where I thought we needed to be going as a way to you know, begin a communication, a conversation. Now, one of the other things we did uh, was as, as we uh, you know, began to communicate uh, this book, which did win the Shingo Prize uh, for its contributions to operational excellence, a number of people said, well, you know, David, Somebody in the trenches, like a quality director in a small hospital, you know, they actually need some tools they can apply right now. And uh, while these tools we kind of provided when we did some consulting, this led me to write this book, The Guide to Achieving Steep Healthcare, uh, Practical Strategies for Delivering Safe, Timely, Effective, Efficient, Equitable Patient-Centered Care. And you know, I, I, when I think about Sniffle Health, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of conceptual complexity but, but behind having a telehealth platform that's going to bring value to communities and value to providers. But really what you need to do is you need to be able to communicate in the right way to the right audience about how you can leverage value from this. And one of the greatest leaders I worked with uh, over my career was Bob Waller, the CEO of the Mayo Clinic, and Bob used to say, you know, when you look at the message or messages you're trying you're trying to deliver, you know, you need to find, you know, 10 different ways to deliver that message because you're probably going to have 10 different audiences that need to receive that message and they need to receive the message uh, in, in a way that's relevant and meaningful for them. Yeah. 
<clears throat> excuse me, when I think about safety in healthcare, when I think how, especially how it applies to what we're trying to do at Sniffle, I think about when I think safe, safety also comes from the strength of that relationship between a patient and a provider. Um, there's trust there. There's a relationship there. I can feel safe with my doctor. The thing that Sniffle is really trying to be intentional about is to say these retail models of going to see random doctors and random doctors treating random patients, there's no continuity of care. There's no relationship. There's no established safety between them. And we think that being able to have a medical home, having your provider, not just a provider, but your doctor that knows your healthcare journey is a way to be proactive and to ensure that you are getting safe, continuous, contiguous care from a, a person or a medical home, a clinic or a practice that has known your journey for a long time. And that's been, uh, that's been something that as, as Snipple has shared that with the marketplace, as we've shared this with physicians, something that they're echoing back to us. Yes, that is what we want as well. We want to give our patients a, a safe place where they can consistently come back to us and get the great care uh, that they deserve uh, and to have that safely. Sure. When you think about uh, the Sniffle platform and uh, moving closer to safe care uh, to, to, to reduce harm in health care, but, but to, to, to avoid un untoward outcomes, uh, certainly the opportunity to access care earlier. So, so you have a concern, you, you, you want that concern to be addressed sooner rather than later. Uh, just, just given challenges with uh, uh, office workflow, office capacity. In America today, there's probably many situations where it could be two or three months before you can have a face-to-face -face office visit. If, if later that day you could have a telehealth consultation, that that could make a big difference. Now, you know, my wife reminds me, Chris, that you know, certain patients need to be seen. Uh, so you could have a telehealth consult like she had with with one of her patients, and uh, I won't provide all the details to avoid a HIPAA violation. But long story short, this patient wasn't feeling very well, uh, and uh, didn't but didn't think he needed to come in. My wife said, "No, I I think I need to examine you." So this patient came in. She did a physical exam. She saw these uh, petechiae across the the body, these these sort of uh, reddish purplish bruises. And she said, you, you must have like almost no functioning platelets. She did a platelet count and the count was close to zero. Uh, you know, the patient needed to be put immediately on steroids. I think uh, ultimately uh, got, a, got a platelet transfusion uh, and, and didn't have any untoward health events from that event. Could have easily had a bleed into his brain. Uh, uh, from from having no platelets to clot the blood, and so so that's kind of an example where where um, uh, uh, you know, telehealth doesn't equate to uh, total non-visit care. Correct. In, in in many cases, it it can set up uh, a, a a a more uh, a more readily available, a more timely. Uh, a face-to-face -face visit. Completely agree, David. I think that, um, I mean, that's an incredible example. And thankfully your wife recognized that and got the patient in. I, I agree with you. The the timeliness factor of steep, an appointment can be arranged from a patient's perspective 24 seven, because I'm not feeling well, I can get online. 
Dr. David isn't available, obviously, at 11 p.m., but I see his schedule online, and he's got an appointment opening at 9, virtually. I can't get into the office for an in-person visit for maybe three weeks. I think right now in Texas, it's 26 days to get into a new new patient appointment here in Texas for, for family medicine. So that's, if, if, if virtually I can book an appointment or when my child is sick and I can book an appointment for him and get on my pediatric uh, clinic's calendar tomorrow, that's very timely, especially when the complexities of today's world. I mean, people have lots of different jobs and lots of schedules around those jobs and may not have the ability this kind of, all of the, the steep protocol and the framework, they're really all connected, you know, because what I was about to say is the equity access, you know, access of this is not all people can just take off a day of work and go to the doctor. People may not have that flexibility in their work schedule um, if they're an hourly, you know, in an hourly position or something that doesn't give them that ability and that flexibility. So a virtual platform can provide tremendous equity for people um, and the efficiencies of, of AI and advanced tech, I mean, with, without doubt, Sniffle, again, we're, we're a little biased, but we've applied a lot of efficiency to both sides for both patients and physicians to support that process, to be more efficient. So we talked, you know, not to be too pedantic about this, about Steve here, but we, we talked a little bit about safety. So in timeliness, yeah, it's timeliness not only for patients and caregivers, but also for providers. So, you know, a provider who's taking care of, of a group of patients does want to be responsive. Uh, and there's no way that, that, that all the patients that might need to have some communication with that physician that day can, can, can physically get processed through an office. So for that provider, the timeliness of being able to have, have just a, a very brief telehealth consultation and address an issue, whether it be a, you know, a prescription renewal or, 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 or some other issue is, uh, uh, is uh, uh, you know, a, a, a real opportunity through a, a telehealth platform such as Sniffle Health. You know, in terms of efficiency, so, you know, efficiency is a part of it's about waste reduction in care. Okay. So it, it's about, um, yeah, some patients don't need to be in an office. They, they, their, their, their problem can be resolved just through a telehealth consultation. Uh, it, it, it saves the office a lot of resources, uh, reduces waste in the office. So if you could have someone avoid needing to drive an hour to, to some physician's office for a consultation, that, that, that's a huge waste reduction opportunity. Yeah. Uh, you know, effective care, effective cares around delivering care that, that, that is likely to improve health outcomes, appropriate care. And it's also about avoiding care that's that, where the where the benefits do not out, uh, exceed exceed the risks. So you know things like uh, being able through a telehealth consultation to figure out okay, uh, say your primary care doc, yeah, this patient needs a uh, colonoscopy. Um, 
And so uh, uh, maybe it's because you're, you're, you're doing some review and you find out that this patient's in the right age group for, for needing a, 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 a preventive colonoscopy. So you find out you, you, don't have an off, you don't need to have an office visit to figure that out. And then you go ahead and schedule the colonoscopy with gastroenterologist. That'd be an example. Now, some physicians would argue, well, but doesn't telehealth lead to uh, unnecessary care like overuse of antibiotics? Uh, it, 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 it shouldn't, uh, there, th that interface with, with patients through, through a telehealth consultation, uh, on the margin, efficient, uh, a physician shouldn't be any more likely to prescribe an antibiotic than, the, than she or he would in a face-to-face in in -face office consultation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, you know, I, I think there's, as you look at that, there's, there's really not much evidence that telehealth actually leads to uh, the delivery of unnecessary care. Uh, and, and then, you know, we talk about equitable care. I, I agree with you, Chris, that it's really important to make uh, access to telehealth more broadly available in communities. Uh, Sniffle Health needs to partner with others to do that because otherwise telehealth could, could lead to increasingly inequitable care. Mm -hmm. If only people who have the, the, the resources of access to the internet access to, to video, access to a consultation. If, if only a small part of a given community has that access, that's, that's not good for reducing health disparities in that community. Yeah. Two things I would say <clears throat> on the effective piece, what we're, from our perspective, where we look at AI and advanced tech is to be able to synthesize large amounts of data to then help a provider be more effective with their decision-making, with their pro pro process and, and the practice that they're running. Um, you went to training a long time ago and maybe you, you've been, you've kept up with all of these things, but possibly there could be a scenario that presents itself with a 39 week pregnant, 42 year old female that has some condition and maybe the AI could help bring back some data to help you then validate that or, or challenge that or pro propose what these treatment plan could be. And I, so I, we really see that AI and advanced tech can help physicians and clinicians provide more effective care for their patient base. And on the equity or um, on the equity side, the access that you just mentioned, something we're really excited about, you know, the, the government just announced the ACP program, the advanced connectivity program. Uh, and and then an initiative to bring broadband internet to the whole country. That is going to really help people, not just with healthcare, I mean, with education, folks that don't have internet, um, it's hard to be able to compete with the knowledge that is required today. And so when I think about AI, another guest that we had, Dr. Harvey Castro talks about, it's not work replacement. It's not that AI is gonna take over us. It's that it's gonna shift how we do things. We have to upskill. We as people, we have to you know, train more and learn more on how to then use this new, this, these new tools to be able to bring internet access to those that don't have it today, that they can then use it for educational purposes, but also so that they can be proactive and get that safe and timely and effective care that they deserve. That is gonna be something that 
Sniffle is really proud to come alongside and to champion and to to make happen here across the country. Sure. And so, uh, Chris, you know, there's this diagnostic resource connected with Sniffle Health. Maybe you'll say something a little bit more about that. But what I will say is that physicians who use AI are, 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 are going to be able to provide better care for their patients. Um, but that doesn't uh, obviate the need for clinical decision-making. You know, just like the patient that my wife brought in and found out that his platelet count was close to zero when she ex- after she examined him, you know, if, if some eye diagnosis had, had said, oh, you know, th- this guy's just got the flu or something, 99% probability is this guy has the flu. Well, you know, uh, if my wife hadn't used her clinical judgment to realize I need to examine this, pl- this patient because top of my list is I want to make sure that this guy has functioning platelets. Absolutely. Uh, and and so, so, you know, I, I think uh, more thoughtful physicians like my wife understand that AI is going to help them provide better care, but they also understand that, you know, they can't check their brain out, okay? Uh, because their, their cumulative clinical experience and, and their, their, their ability to dis- discern nuance that might not be discerned through AI uh, allows them to provide the best care possible for their patients. Completely agree, David. I think the empathy that a physician brings to that relationship, to that patient, no program can can replace that, in, in my opinion. And you know, with our AI tool, Iagnosis, um, you know, our stance at Sniffle is that a diagnosis should only be rendered by a licensed medical provider. And Iagnosis is an AI-derived diagnosis. Our AI uh, machine learning language protocol is built upon 14 million patient encounters. That's a, a you know patient visit. So that the starting point of that is really powerful. And then when a patient puts in their family medical history, their lifestyle, and then their chief complaint or their first symptom, that medical interview that the AI will then lead them through returns a set of differentials, and that that return has a 95% accuracy rating. That's tremendous. Now, even as strong as that is, at Sniffle, we still believe. That is just information now for the physician to put into his or her hands and now use that to properly treat and care for the patient, right? So it's never meant to usurp a physician or a clinician. It's meant to provide tools to help provide maybe even more timely care. Because if if this physician has 30 patients they need to see today, it's not trying to get physicians to have to see 50 patients. Because again, we want physicians to have joy in their practice but maybe that they can use this advanced tech and this AI to help them be more timely to ask that additional question. For example, your wife, she saw something that said, I don't like this, I want you to come in. This isn't just a flu, there's something else going on here. And maybe the AI could be part of that uh, catalyst to help ask that additional question or those additional series of questions. So we, we definitely agree with you that empathy and that physician expertise and the clinical training you all go through, a program can't replace that, but it can help recall and validate and retrieve lots of valuable information for that provider to use in that uh, assessment and diagnosis. So Christian, we've been talking about steep care, safe, timely, effective, efficient, equitable, patient-centered. 
a lot of what we've already talked about here is, is patient-centered care. Yeah. Uh, care that's consistent with patients' uh, uh, preferences, uh, care that's respectful. And what else we know is that if patients are engaged with their care and they're engaged in, in informed decision-making, shared decision-making, they make uh, much better decisions about their care. They end up being more satisfied with their care. And the potential of some of the Sniffle Health uh, AI-related tools will help patients to, to be activated and, and, and become participants in, in informed decision-making, shared decision-making with their care providers. Yeah. David, I appreciate that. Let me, uh, I want to touch on one more topic before we, we're about to land uh, our plane here. Will you touch on the quadruple aim yeah, of healthcare sure. and, and where did that come from and sure. how is that practiced? Sure. So, uh, so Donald Berwick, uh, who was one of the authors of, of uh, this uh, to, to Err is Human and also Cross Inequality Chasm, uh, uh, Dr. Berwick, a few years later, after crossing, uh, the Cross Inequality Chasm was published and the six aims were articulated of quality, he, he sort of uh, uh, recast these, these objectives to say that initially he said there was a triple aim of healthcare, which was to uh, optimize health outcomes, to optimize the patient experience with care, and to reduce population level healthcare cost. But then a, a number of, uh, uh, of, of leaders in healthcare endeavored to, to, to both deliver steep care and to address those, those, those three uh, triple aim at that time, optimize health outcomes and optimize the patient experience of care, reduce population level cost. And they realized that, this, that we're beginning to see a lot of clinician burnout in healthcare, nurses, physicians. And they realized if you're really gonna move the needle on those three aims, as well as on steep care, that you were going to need to address the quality of professional life or the joy in caregiving for care providers, nurses, uh, physicians, other care providers. And so that then Berwick re-articulated uh, the triple aim to be the quadruple aim, adding joy in caregiving. And certainly we hope that, that uh, you know, some of the uh, resources that a Sniffle Health platform would bring to healthcare would, would in, in fact, enhance that joy of caregiving as well. David, <clears throat> David it, it is a daily priority for us. It's a daily discussion that we have internally with our team of how are we making sure we're serving the stakeholders, which for us are the, the physicians, the clinicians, and the, and the patients. And specifically, how can we make this more joyful for doctors and more delightful for patients. So it is, I love that the triple aim became the quadruple aim because I think that last, that last leg of that table really helps to set that table to be sturdy and strong for what we're trying to achieve here in healthcare. So Chris, you know, we have a lot to learn, okay? Uh, Charlie Munger, who, who recently died, you know, he used to say that just make sure you're learning in life, you know? Uh, and, I, uh, for this transition I made a few years ago to work with these global companies like Sniffle Health, like Pascal Metrics, like Mentis, 
I realized I needed an updated set of tools. So I went back to UNC at the age of 63, 63 to 65. I, I, I did the MBA, the number one rated online MBA in the world MBA at UNC. Some of it's face-to-face, -face, some of it's remote. Some of it I did 2 a.m. on my farm in Italy, uh, and some I did here in Dallas, uh, uh, you know, seven in the evening, synchronous with a teacher in Chapel Hill. But, um, you know, through that, I, uh, I, I, I realized that um, I needed this additional set of frameworks and tools to be able to help Sniffle Health and these other companies be all that they can be. And so I, I think, you know, the spirit that, that I hope I bring to our work together with Sniffle Health is we want to learn. We want to learn from patients and caregivers and physicians and nurses. Uh, in business parlance that I learned through my MBA, there'll be plenty of pivots that we're going to be doing over the next weeks and months yeah. so that our platform can be as valuable as possible. This is not some kind of stagnant fixed concept. If it is, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're not going to be in business in a few months. Right. Uh, if we want to bring value to the marketplace, we need to be learning and we need to be incorporating those learnings into improving the value of, of the Sniffle Health platform. Yeah. David, I, I see us practice this and I see this in you and I see this in our team. There's a commitment to continuous learning and improvement. And if that commitment can be there, then everything is possible. So I appreciate your time. Last question, and that is, it comes from Chris Shembra, the Wall Street Journal bestselling author wrote Gratitude and Pasta and Gratitude Through Hard Times, has this fantastic question, and that is, if you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life who you do not give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? Well, you know, it's tough to narrow that down to one person, right? You know, I talked about the, the formative influence of my mother, my father, and my seven siblings. Uh, I, I would say my wife, you know, I... I uh, 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 I, I get a lot of inspiration from my wife and uh, the work that she does every day here in the Dallas-Fort Worth community, taking care of her patients. And uh, with what I'm trying to do with, the, with these various developmental companies that have solutions to uh, make healthcare more affordable, safer, and more equitable, I, I always bounce those ideas off her to, to get sort of grounded in reality about how can my efforts actually help someone like her or, or her colleagues who, who are who are actually you know at, at, at the uh, at, at the leading edge of, of, of uh, interfacing with patients and caregivers in healthcare. Fantastic. Grateful to you, Michaela. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for your friendship, uh, your guidance, uh, the mentorship is tremendous. I am really excited about what we're going to continue and the commitment that we have to continue to improve and to learn and how to try to make healthcare better for, for all of us, not only just here in DFW, but across the country and across the globe. Well, thank you. I, I look forward to our work together. We don't uh, certainly have all the answers, but uh, uh, hopefully we're, 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 we'll be nimble and we'll, uh, we'll understand uh, when it's time to, uh, to change or as as the MBAs would say, to pivot, to, to uh, improve the value of the Sniffle Health platform and, uh, you know, to be good listeners and, and good learners. Appreciate that. This is Healthcare Ain't Easy. And healthcare is not easy, but I, it is 
absolutely possible to do incredible things, to create incredible solutions. You've just heard from a person that is a remarkable contributor to healthcare in lots of different realms, but Dr. David Ballard is here and he's committed. And at the age of 63, going back to school to find ways to get more tools and to learn how to make larger contributions to healthcare. There's lots of us here. We all are working towards this process to make healthcare better. We're grateful that you joined us. We look forward to talking with you soon. Bye.